I just want to start by saying what I've noticed when I leave and I come back, I noticed uh, I notice how grateful I am to be a part of this community. We really have a, a pretty cool thing going on here to, to really come together and to explore, explore this path and to actually sit together. And also, I feel that we come together in a really special way, coming together in a way where we're honoring diversity, that there's all these different views in this room, these different views about how the world works and different views about how the spiritual path unfolds. And I just want to name, that's what we want to cultivate is a diversity of views, because that's what makes this discussion and this exploration um, continue to be rich. And yet at the same time, I feel there's also a quality that, that, as I often say at the beginning of the retreat, that, that all of us here, that you know that there's a deeper way of living or a deeper way of relating to, you could say, the mystery of, of this thing we call living. And not only that, I feel that, that this path gives us a deeper way of navigating the ups and downs that we're faced with in, in this world. You know, just like the the tragedy yesterday, right? The, the tragedy of those uh, 19 uh, hotshot uh, forest firefighters that, that died near Prescott. So it, I feel it's important to actually come together, to come together for the, the, the good times in our life, but also the difficulties and actually navigating them together through this practice, through this, this practice of being with, but also... Um, uh, feeling with feeling with uh, uh, such a tragedy that happened and I feel like that's what we're trying to practice is is, is being present and being open to these ups and downs that, that life uh, throws us I guess this is a roundabout way of saying thank you for coming tonight <laughs> <laughs> for creating this community because that's what you do when you come here is, is you're part of creating this community your practice creates this community when you come here tonight I want to continue with a theme that I've been uh, speaking about and this is the theme of awakening yeah. and simply put in early Buddhism the, the Buddha talks about that an awakened mind is, is simply a mind that's free of greed, hatred and delusion and I've been posing the question of uh, what's that like or where are we headed towards in this practice? And I've been sharing with you a, a variety of different perspectives. And the last time I was here, I shared with you a passage from the Zen Master Dogen, the, that passage of um, enlightenment is like the moon in water. The moon does not get wet, nor is the water broken. And we explored that. And I think it was in our, in the midst of that uh, discussion that it came up, we were talking about actually another um, Zen poem that I shared with everyone, which I want to explore tonight. And it's just going to be the, the first line of that. And I'm going to explore it with two different, um, two different translations. One being, uh, the great way, the great way is not difficult for those who are not attached to their preferences. So to explore that with you, but also this sense of the great way is not difficult for those who do not have preferences. And, and we'll take a look, a look at that. 
And the other thing I want to point out, because this will fit in, hopefully, if I have time, to this uh, to this theme I'm sharing with you tonight, is that I also feel that this quality of awakening, that it really is this process of us opening up to, uh, as I said before, the mystery of living, the mystery of living and dying, and actually being here for that. That this path is not only about good health, which is a good thing, but also touching that mystery. As John O'Donohue says, and this is, I think, the tragedy of, of the way we live sometimes, is he says, we are so busy managing our lives, we forget this great mystery that we're involved in. Have you noticed that? Like it's so caught up that we miss the, the unknown. And I feel Zen, and one of the reasons I want to bring it into our Vipassana practice is because I feel it does a wonderful job of speaking to this quality. Compared to early Buddhism, it has much more of a poetic quality. It has this sometimes non-rational, non-linear quality to it, which I find uh, so helpful in this arena. And I want to give you just one example of this, which I think is a beautiful example of the flavor of the emergence of Zen. And, and Zen is basically, a, you could say, a branch of Buddhism that began to emerge in China. Um, it, it was influenced by a, a lot of Taoism, but also not only Taoism, but Confucianism. And it traveled through China and really developed there and then into Japan and Korea. And the story of the origin of, of Zen is quite interesting. It said that the Buddha was was up and was about to give a Dharma talk to expound the Dharma and he held up a flower and one of his monks Mahakasapa smiled and the Buddha looked out at him and he said to you, to you I transmit the, the treasury of the true Dharma I and that was the beginning of Zen which I feel is, is so uh, powerful about how Zen teaches this path. It's like the act, the act of holding up a flower. Not so, so much the words or the explanations <laughs> or getting it right. <coughs> something else that's being transmitted. And Mahakasapa got it. And then that was the beginning of this lineage. Let's get into this, what's called the first Zen poem. It's um, In Chinese, it's the Tsing Sing Ming. In, in Japanese, it's the Shinjin Mei. It's, it's usually translated as uh, faith in mind or absolute trust, and you could say the, the essential nature of mind. And as I said, it's just this line that I, I want to explore because I think there can be something so potent about any of these lines that you find in Zen literature, which is simply... The great way isn't difficult for those who are, who are unattached to their preferences. Actually, I'll, I'll continue just a, with another passage. When you cling to a hairbreadth of distinction, heaven and earth are set, up, set apart. If you want to realize the truth, don't be for or against. Right, this great way, this, this path, this spiritual path, it isn't difficult if you're if you're not attached to your preferences. 
and I feel that this is a, a wonderful thing just to explore. What's your relationship to your preferences, to your views? How do you actually hold them? And it can be so tricky. If you just think, for example, in the realm of political views, have you seen how much friction can happen around political views? War has happened because of a difference of views and attachment to views. It's incredible. So much separation can happen around that, which is really a kind of preference. And yet, at the same time, it's important to have preferences and views. For example, in a relationship, I don't know if you've ever tried this, it's kind of difficult to meet another person if they're not expressing any kind of preference or view anytime. There needs to be actually a coming together in some kind of way. How do you voice a preference or a view, but also uh, uh, not be uh, not cling to it in, in some kind of manner? And actually, I, I'm hoping that this is one of the things that we can discuss in the discussion group because I, I feel that this is quite rich. My my brother-in-law and sister-in-law. They have a wonderful way of um, dealing with this, which I think is quite interesting. They're pretty clear about having preferences, which I want to say is, is really wonderful because it shows that there's a strong sense of self there. And when they come together and they really disagree, sometimes what will happen, and th th they, would, they, would not, they don't do this passive-aggressively, but one will say, you know what, with this one, I will give you 51% on this decision. And I was talking to my sister-in-law about it, and she said, it's really fascinating when the other person gives you 51%, because at first you might feel like, phew, I get my own way. But she said, actually what happens in the relationship is you feel an obligation to really take into account the other point of view, the, the, the other preference, and to really get a sense of how are you going to navigate that. Because they only bring this up when there's a strong disagreement. But they find it a, a really wonderful way to navigate these things as well. And, and I find it such a, um, an interesting place to, to explore. I mean, I know for me, in many relationships, it's, it's, it's really important for me to, to speak out preferences because it helps the relationship. And I think often, as a result of maybe being a Zen monk and reading stuff like that, I thought the best thing would be to not have any preferences. But then what would happen in my relationships with people is there wouldn't be any kind of um, uh, relating going on. It was like I wasn't showing up. That was a really important lesson for me. And at the same time, to be flexible. <coughs> the, one of the most poignant times this came up between uh, me and my wife is um, the night before our wedding. <laughs> Amazing things that can happen. <laughs> and both of us can be very particular about language and we had written our own vows and uh, we had written out the whole entire ceremony and we had a disagreement about like two different words in the vows it was just i mean it looked so petty but we were so like felt like if this word changes it completely changes the vows and uh neither of us were budging and many of my friends were there so we thought we'd take it to them not tell them who's is who to get a broader view and that didn't help because we still felt the same. And uh, I mean, it, it does sound so ridiculous. It really was a, a bunch of words, just a, a couple of words. 
And then it was so striking. Uh, Robin, my wife, uh, had such a brilliant idea. She said to me, you know what? I'm going to say the vows how you want them to be said when I say them. I want to give this to you. And it was so touching to have her offer that. And it was much easier for me to say, I would love to give that, the same thing to you. So what we did is we, we said the vows, but we said it in the way that the other person wanted. And I, I want to point out with this, we had this really beautiful moment of generosity, of really coming together as a couple. But we wouldn't have come together at the same time if there wasn't those preferences at the same time. How do you navigate that? How can you get to a place where you're in the world of preferences, but you're not attached to them? And when you're not attached to them, the great way is not difficult. Honestly, though, I don't like that translation of, the, of, of this poem because it doesn't get to, I think, the real flavor of Zen. The real flavor of Zen, I feel, what I've seen, especially when it really developed in China and then refined in Japan, is that maybe one way to put it is I feel that a really good Zen master is a person who's really good at giving people a really hard time. That's why I didn't go into Zen. I don't have that personality. <laughs> That's what it is, to have a really clear Zen teacher that can put a student in a bind in a real bind that it feels very problematic. And then for the practitioner to work with that, to work through that in some kind of manner with their meditation, to clarify it so that they end up at a deeper understanding. And that bind a lot of times really shakes up the student because what it's challenging is our, our conditioned dualistic mind and how we usually understand things. And a, a, a skillful Zen master says, your understanding, your superficial dualistic understanding of the world is not going to be allowed here, is not accepted in terms of really the unfolding of the spiritual path. To, to me, a more accurate translation of, of this first uh, passage is, the great way is not difficult for those without preferences. Which I find much better, because and I'll share with, uh, share with you an interchange between a Zen master and, and this very translation. Because I think what the Zen master is trying to do, the Zen teacher in this poem, is basically to say, um, is to put somebody in a bind, to have a, a monastic or practitioner to see, wow, I have preferences. I pick and choose all the time. And yet the, the great way to really understand that is to get to a place without preferences. How do I do that? How do I, how do I still be a human being and hold this, this sense of not preferences? How do I uh, uh, really come to terms with th this contradiction? Because they really don't fit. How do you understand that? To actually be a human being with pre preferences and to deeply understand this world of no preferences. And what a bind, right? Because if you prefer not to have preferences, that's another preference. <laughs> you can't get out of it just by having no preferences. Because then you've, you've, you've picked, you've chosen. And yet the great way is not difficult. The essence of the great way is, is, is a mind that embodies no picking, no choosing, no preferences. How do you navigate this? To be a human being and yet to somehow be beyond it.
And I want to give you another example of this kind of pushing that happens more in uh, from early Buddhism from this teacher Ajahn Chah. And it's a fascinating story because in um, I guess it was in the summer of 1981, Ajahn Chah, who is a really quite well-known Thai forest teacher, monastic, he um, decided to write a letter to his senior most. Uh, student, Ajahn Sumedho. And it's important to know that Ajahn Chah, he must have been in his, uh, quite later in his life, had never written a letter to anyone. He was not a letter writer. (laughs) He never did this. And yet he asked his attendant to dictate the specific letter to Ajahn Sumedho. And this is all he wrote, which is really quite striking. striking. He said, Whenever you have feelings of love or hate for anything whatsoever, these will be your aids and partners in building parami, or building skillful states of mind. That's the first sentence. Then he said, the Buddha Dharma, or this this path, or the essence of awakening, is not to be found in moving forwards, nor in moving backwards, nor in standing still. This Samedo is your place of non-abiding. And then a couple weeks weeks later, actually, Ajahn Chah had a stroke in which he was no longer able to speak or move or able to teach ever again. It's wild. This was his final teaching. Just in these words. And do you hear the bind, at least metaphorically, to really find awakening? It's not about moving forwards. It's not about going anywhere, getting anywhere, or getting anything. You can't move backwards. It's not about sitting still. I think up or down wouldn't count either. (laughs) There's no place to abide, right? And when you understand that, that's when you understand this quality of non-abiding. Again, do you hear do you hear what he's 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 trying to do here? He's trying to put Ajahn Sumedho in a bind. It's difficult to understand that with our conditioned dualistic mind. But Ajahn Chah is giving the, the, the essential instructions needed for, for freedom. And I, I think it's it's a, an important teaching. It's it's uh, learning that there really is nothing to abide in. There's nothing that you can rely on. And when there's nothing to rely on, how do you face experience? How do you come to terms with this mystery of living? And one of the gateways could be this quality of awareness that we're cultivating here, of resting in awareness, of being aware. Not to find some kind of fixed home, but to simply have this awareness so that we can meet the impermanent world that we live in.
So I want to share with you, if I can remember it, because I didn't print it out, <laughs> the story from uh, uh, the Zen master in Japanese, uh, Joshu or Chaochu. And he actually uses this first line um, when speaking to the monastic, and he basically says, you know, the, uh, the great way is not difficult for those without uh, preferences. All you need to do is just avoid picking and choosing, and that, that itself is clarity, that itself is awakening. <clears throat> and I, I do not abide, he said, I do not abide in clarity or awakening. And then he said to a student, is there anything more that you're holding on to? So it's pretty bizarre already. Here we go. <laughs> How do you understand that? And, and uh, the monk's, monk was confused, and he said, well, if, if you're not residing or abiding and hanging out and awakening, um, what do you do? How do you move about in the world? And Joshu said, I don't know. <laughs> so I, I want to speak to this a little bit too, coming back to this this great way without without preferences. Is not difficult for those without preferences. And also what Joju might be getting at in terms of this sense of not knowing and not abiding, because it fits in, you might hear with the story from Ajahn Chah. <coughs> And I think part of what this poem and what Joshu is, is pointing out is that uh, uh, is this quality of awareness. Being aware, have you noticed that awareness doesn't have preference, the fundamental nature of it. It just sees, it just notices. The mind might react, there might be reactivity in the mind, but the awareness itself doesn't have that quality of reactivity. The, the image that's given often is that of a... Um, here, of, of that of a mirror, right? A mirror it reflects everything that's there, but it doesn't it doesn't pick or choose. It doesn't doesn't decide that it likes this more than that. That's you could say another layer of our beingness, but the fundamental nature of awareness doesn't have that quality. And what comes from that is this open quality, this open witnessing quality. And I feel that what also can be uh, connected with this is not only this quality of witnessing, but also I think what begins to meld in is this unconditional quality of love. That there's an open quality to whatever arises. Hafiz, the Sufi poet, puts it really well. He has this, this wonderful poem called The Sun Never Says. He says, the sun never says, you owe me. <laughs> you ever notice that? <laughs> And he says, look at what happens to a light like that. It brightens the entire sky. That, that kind of love, the one that isn't asking for something in return, that isn't picking or choosing. This connection with witnessing, this connection with unconditional love. And I feel what comes with this is this uh, this quality that I feel um, Joju is uh, 
Joshi was is uh, alluding to is that when you can rest in that, then there is no need to have a plan about how things are going to unfold. You don't need to have some kind of set out path or plan or have everything figured out. You can actually be open to the way things are and to move with how the moment presents itself. But you might notice it's difficult to have a mind like that. Have you noticed how often the mind gets lost in planning or scheming? And a lot of that, I feel, is because of this fear, the fear of the mystery of this activity of living and dying. We want to hold on to something. But what this Zen Master Joshi was offering to the monk was really important is, I don't need a place to abide. This is not about abiding and awakening. It's about not clinging, not getting lost in, in preferences. And then to be able to rest in not knowing. Oh, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen in the next moment. And the openness that arises from that. So it's this question, can you cultivate this quality of one of not knowing to help support this quality of witness, witnessing or unconditional love that we're trying to open up to? And the question of how do you navigate preferences skillfully? So for tonight, I, I invite you to, again, keep it simple. To, to be aware of what's going on, but not getting lost in figuring out what's going on. Does that make sense? So simply, that simple presence, that awareness. Can you rest in this awareness that I was talking about, like the mirror? To be open to your experience, regardless of the mind's wandering or not. And then instead of the uh, loving-kindness practice that we usually do, what I'll do is I'll uh, offer a, a compassion practice so, so we can just honor what happened on, on Sunday. Right now, if you need to move around or stretch your legs, feel free to, and then we'll uh, begin the sit in just a minute. <coughs>